Greetings, and welcome to another episode of the Afrofuturist Podcast. I'm Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining me. Today on the podcast, we have the director of the New Frontier Labs at Sundance Institute, Kamal Sinclair. Kamal is a very special person to me because she and I started our careers together. We both started on the stomp stage as children, (laughs) jumping around, banging on found objects, creating music and creating show. And the first day we met, I immediately was drawn to how amazingly talented she was uh, and is how incredibly intelligent she is and how she had the very quick ability to get it and put her entire self into her performance. And that transitioned into what she's doing today. Kamal has always been 100% involved and intense in everything she's ever done. Um, She will talk about how she went from being a dancer and a stomper to being the director of the new Frontier Lab. And it didn't really surprise me too much that she ended up in this position because Kamal has always been someone who was smart enough to pivot to the thing that was coming. She has always been a bit of a futurist when it came to um, what's happening in entertainment. She started with her own dance company and had her own theater company called Black Males, which is now at the Smithsonian, uh, the African-American Museum in the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Kamal was one of the first transmedia producers to be out there doing transmedia, and she has an immense uh, experience and resume doing that. And she talks about all the things that the New Frontier Lab programs have pioneered when it comes to storytelling on different platforms and in different ways from AR, VR to biomed to wearables to wired cities. She is at the precipice of all of it. She is at the cutting edge of what's been going on and what is going to be going on in storytelling. And it is an honor to know her and to hear her and to have her on the podcast. You can reach her at Sundance.org. She is the director of the New Frontier Labs program again, and she is just a wonderful human being and very, very close to my heart. Uh, So without further ado, please enjoy Kamal Sinclair the future. Kamal Sinclair, thank you for being on the show. Really appreciate seeing you. I'm really happy to be here. And um, uh, Kamal and I go way, way back (laughs) to when we were jumping around on stage together. Um, And you started jumping over me on stage. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I was. I was. That's back in the day when I had knees that I could jump that high. Nowadays, I'm walking under people. Um, But most people don't know you as an artist. That's Most people don't know you as a dancer, which is mm-hmm. odd to me. Right, because that's, was that's what I know you as. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden you became this big wig executive and, and now <laughs> nobody recognizes that you started out as an artist, as a dancer. And um, just in general, without having to do a huge backstory and biography on how you got here, mm-hmm. Um, I would like to talk about your transition Mm -hmm. from being an artist to doing what you do and how being an artist informs Mm -hmm. what you're doing now. That's a great question. Um, well, (laughs) there is a long backstory to it, but, you know, uh, trying to summarize that really succinctly, um, I ended up getting my master's in business after shutting down my theater company that I had been running for six years. And um, my goal in that was to be able to come back and do, you know, run a theater company more efficiently with, you know, this kind of business pedigree. Um, And what I came out of that experience with was feeling a little bit like 
um, a Robin Hood. Like, oh my God, there's all this valuable information about how the business world speaks. There's certain strategies, there's certain um, uh, kind of linguistics around it that I think independent artists, particularly diverse, uh, kind of a diversity of independent artists really could benefit from. And I, I felt like it was kind of my responsibility at that point because I'd seen so many, I mean, you know, growing up in the 90s, you know, in, in New York, especially in the east, the, in kind of the village, the west side, east side, I was seeing all these incredibly vibrant artists that, you know, were hard to penetrate. And then contrasting that with my experience at Stomp, where I'm seeing, you know, a show that within six months made all its money back and it's just was, you know, kind of banking uh, margins of profit that were quite high. Uh, I think it was the, like one, at one point, the highest profit margin show out of the whole Broadway um, kind of catalog. And I saw that the kind of juxtaposition between really talented people that could never get out of an ABC theater and, you know, the incredible uh, visibility that Stomp got. And I wanted to try to bridge those gaps for especially people of color, especially women, especially people that are normally marginalized in, you know, all the major art forms. So <clears throat> that really led me to starting to um, consult for artists, arts institutions, and then Hank Willis Thomas, who is my dear friend and a really important African-American conceptual artist, he hired me to be a grant writer on this project called Question Bridge Black Male, which was a transmedia art project that, well, when I came to it, it was just a, like an installation or a documentary, and then through that process, I was able to um, kind of expanded into a transmedia art project. And, and a lot of that came from me trying to see how do brick and mortar theater companies and museums and all of these kind of brick and mortar institutions break through to audiences in the digital world. Because this is like 2005, 2006, 2007, when you really, you were not going to be able to maintain a robust audience unless you were able to bridge that gap. So I was already had all this research about how kind of the, the transmedia world was evolving. I brought that knowledge to QuestionBridge and it kind of blew up. We, we ended up, I ended up becoming a full-fledged artist on the project and it went through, you know, exhibitions in 55 institutions around the world. It had, you know, this huge um, kind of splash and now it's just gotten archived at the Smithsonian. So that kind of put Transmedia Producer on my resume and uh, we got selected by the Sundance New Frontier Lab Program for the very first inaugural lab. And then Susan Bonds from 42 Entertainment, the legendary Susan Bonds, who um, basically, you know, was the godmother of ARGs, you know, alternate reality gaming. She was my advisor and she plucked me out of the crowd and said, hey, come work for me, relocated me to Los Angeles. And <laughs> within a month, I'm working on the amazing Spider-Man's transmedia campaign. I'm working on J.J. Abrams' property. I'm working on, you know, um, just, you know, a big gaming property. And... Uh, and it was really exciting, and I learned a lot. It was a boot camp. What circles were you traveling in in order for someone to approach you with something like a transmedia project? Because, A, not a lot of people know what that is. Mm -hmm. And, B, to have the forward thinking and the faith to say yes to what this thing is. Like, how do you get to transmedia? Right. How well, do you get to be a transmedia producer? Like, what what is that path? Well, mine was definitely not <laughs> typical because I didn't come from coding. I didn't come from tech. I didn't come from uh, marketing necessarily. Um, I came from working with the Woodruff Art Center in Atlanta, which is a billion-dollar net worth uh, art center that has the High Museum, the Atlantic Theater Company, young audiences, and the Atlanta Symphony. And quite frankly, um, their subscription base was, was we call it, you know, kind of dying out, the gray hairs, the blue hairs. Um, and they weren't bringing in new audiences, and they definitely weren't bringing in new diverse audiences. So my role in working on in, with that institution was to figure out, one, how do we bring in new audiences, and particularly because Atlanta is so diverse, how do we bring in the young, diverse audiences? And when I did the research, just going down that route, it all was leading to, okay, YouTube is now, you know, all the, the lines between reality and the virtual space were starting to completely um, become porous. And if you didn't learn how to create these different platforms and these different ways of engaging. And I remember this one kind of random PDF paper I found online of this, 
I, this professor talking about the nonlinear story. Mm-hmm. And that just fascinated me. And I come out of experimental theater. I went to e- NYU's ETW. So I was always about breaking boundaries and fusing things together that weren't supposed to be together. So the idea of being able to do nonlinear story to create this kind of mixed reality before there was, you know, the, the augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, like this mixed reality between what is real. Um, live events that lead you to digital spaces and in global communities and those communities that then drive you to really rich textured live events. And I just kind of came across this term transmedia and then obviously put that on my resume and Susan was like, there's like five people that have that on their resume right now. So that's what we do. Why don't you come over and work with us? Was it difficult to put Kamal, the artist, at the bottom of the list and be Kamal the businesswoman and Kamal the producer? Um, of course. I mean, you know, there's, I always tell people when they get really excited about coming to work for an institution like Sundance as an administrator, I say, you know, well, I'll put it this way. When I was in Atlanta, I was um, an ambassador for Alvin Ailey and Judith Jameson came to town and took a group of young black women professionals uh, to dinner. And, or we took her to dinner, I don't know which way it went. And um, she sat and looked at, like, must have been about 16 of us, and we were all, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And she said, I have the whole world trying to get on my stage. Hmm. But I have no one to run this when I leave. And that was really, you know, so there's a lot of people that it becomes very attractive. And for me, particularly being a mother, I was divorced, single mother of two kids. You know, I didn't want to, I could have easily taken my MBA and gone and gone into the IT sector and other HR, whatever, and made coming out of the gate, you know, five times more than anything I'd ever made as an independent artist working in New York. But I couldn't lose my connection to the arts. And so I said, well, you know, I, I want to stay close to this. And I'd never abandoned the idea of continuing to build a body work eventually. But, you know, you're a mom and you want to make sure those kids are fed. Um, but it was a real blessing. I, I, and I use that word very, <laughs> very broadly. Um, that one of my dear friends from New York, Hank, pulled me in as an artist on Question Bridge. And so, ironically, me going for this transmedia art producing and transmedia um, kind of executive arts administration role led my name to being on the walls of 55 museums and being, you know, kind of archived in the Smithsonian as an artist. So I do feel like I have legacy as an artist and I didn't abandon that. But while building that, um, that large scale project, I also developed these skills that now I can serve institutions like, you know, Just Films, the Ford Foundation, Sundance Institute. And particularly, I was fortunate to um, come into New Frontier, which Shari Frilo, who is uh, been you know a longtime programmer at Sundance as a film programmer, um, is also comes from the art world and is also very technologically um, savvy as a curator and very interested and curious how technology changes you know what we're saying, who we're saying, how we're saying it, and what, how artists are communicating. Um, and so she had started New Frontier in 2007. Around ironically the same time I started seeing the potential of this transmedia space and um and she you know it was this kind of basement you know kind of um initiative at sundance at the festival that was showing work that broke the screen the traditional screens and it was really exciting really powerful work of artists that were taking really courageous um you know steps around how do you bridge the new technology the you know the stories that they wanted to tell and aesthetics and you know I was really happy to be able to be one of the first artists served by that that uh, program through the New Frontier Story Lab and then we went to the festival and exhibited in that in that New Frontier exhibition at Sundance Film Festival and then by the end of that year I, I literally was there as an artist in in 2012 January by November 2012 I was hired as um, the new person taking over the labs. Let's talk about New Frontier. How did New Frontier come about? Was like Redford sitting up in Park City going, hey, you know what would be cool? Robots. Like what happened? Like, well, how, did, yes, yes. What, how did it come? How did it originate? Sure. And I should say to your listeners that New Frontier is um, a section of Sundance that is mandated with, you know, essentially, you know, storytelling only exists if through some sort of a communication 
architecture. You know, it's only all the ideas, emotions, whatever I have in my head, the stories that I have in my head, they don't have meaning as a story until somehow they've been communicated to someone else or been co-created with someone else. And so New Frontier's mandate is essentially to see how the communication architecture of humanity evolves and how artists, we follow the artists, how artists are kind of hacking that architecture and innovating that architecture because a lot of our artists hold patents and they're actually pushing the technology forward. Um, and they, they're creating meaning and figuring out what does storytelling mean on these new capabilities that we have. So that's, that's what we do. And that might mean you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, it might mean gaming, it might mean mobile, it might mean um, uh, artificial intelligence, and recently bioengineering and biomedia, which is a really interesting way that our communication architecture is evolving. So that's New Frontier. How did it get started? is really the vision of Shari Frilo. She had you know, already been at Sundance for quite some time and she had that art, art background, that art world background. And she saw YouTube start to explode. And she was like, hmm, we have to pay attention to that. It's not just film and TV now. There's a, this new space that is not, authorship is challenged in it. Like who's like an actual artist versus you know, a maker or just some person posting their family videos. And she really wanted to give space. Um, and so she shared that vision with Robert Redford and with the um, Sundance you know, programming team, John Cooper, who's the head of the festival. And they said, yeah, you're right. We have to create space for this and, and, and gave her the resources to do so. And I should also say that Redford, the mission of Sundance is not film-based. It's storytelling-based and independent artist-based. So even at the dawn of Sundance, he had a theater department, which still is in existence. He had a dance department as part of Sundance. He, you know, obviously film garnered the most kind of support because that was where he was coming from and had a lot of visibility. It's a very powerful medium, but he's always been multi-platform. And um, you guys were pretty much the catalyst for Oculus. So yeah, I'll tell you the story. Um, we were. We were really uh, fortunate to be part of this critical moment in, in kind of the launch of this second wave of virtual reality innovation, uh, particularly around trying to um, establish it as a mass medium. Um, and again, that, that goes to Shari. To be clear, virtual reality is a 40 plus year old medium. It's as old as gaming. And people have been trying to crack the code on this forever. Um, and you know, a lot of universities, although it didn't wasn't able to establish itself as, a, as an industry or a mass medium back in the 90s. A lot of the kind of um, institutions like USC and uh, you know, a lot of academic institutions still had the caves and the virtual reality. And they were still experimenting and doing their R&D in it in a lot of different ways for entertainment, for healthcare, for um, even post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, all these things. Um, and so Noni de la Pena, who is a, an incredible journalist and um, really has been working with new technology and, and journalism for a very long time. Uh, she was working in Second Life and really curious about how you could recreate in a, with the journalistic rigor that you know, a camera would have, you know, journalism in Second Life. So she had already been in a virtual space. Um, and she was at USC as a researcher and was working with their virtual reality uh, research space and came up with this piece called Hunger in Los Angeles, which um, emulated using documentary audio assets, you know, the kind of uh, food bank crisis that LA was going through back in 2012. <clears throat> she created this really powerful piece called Hunger in Los Angeles where, you know, a man standing on food lines goes into a diabetic uh, coma or goes into a diabetic shock and you hear everybody trying to help him. And so she was able to recreate this. And when Shari came down to check this piece out, um, at USC, she was like, oh my God, this is powerful. There's, I have so much empathy for this man. I, I want to, so there's something powerful here. We, we've got to get this to New Frontier at Sundance for the 2012 festival. And of course, they couldn't bring a $50,000 headset from USC and all the bells and whistles of that up to Park City, Utah <laughs> in the snow and up in this tiny mountain town. Um, and so her intern was Palmer Lucky. And he said, oh, I might be able to figure out a way to do it using mobile phone and that was the prototype for the oculus rift and we were able to showcase it the other thing i have to say that was really brave about that moment is you know this is a 40,000 to 60,000 person festival 
this piece that she wanted to bring was a 12 minute piece, one person at a time. And she said, I have no idea how this will scale. I have no idea if this makes any sense at all, but there's something powerful in this that we've got to at least expose to our creative community. And it was a hit. I mean, everyone that went through that experience could not stop raving about how powerful it was. And um, then Palmer was able to do the Kickstarter, and then he got a you know big swath of VC money. And then by 2014, we actually had uh, the a DK2 at the 2014 festival when Chris Milk's first VR piece, um, Clouds with Jonathan Menard and James George, uh, Oculus's first kind of cinema demo, and um, uh, Eve Valkyrie, which was just a little experiment by CCP Games of their Eve franchise, and. <laughs> And again, lines around the corner. Like, we just could not stop, like, even manage the traffic. There were so many people trying to push into those pieces. And, um, and within two months after that festival, uh, Facebook bought Oculus. Yeah, I, re- I was at that festival, and I remember that. And you took me, and you were like, you have to try this thing. And <laughs> because Kamal and I go back away, she made me, she helped me skip the line, and I jumped in front of a whole bunch of people. And I was blown away. I was really blown away by it, so much so that I was like, if everybody isn't going this way, you're missing it. This is the thing that's (laughs) going to happen. You said that to me. I I did. I can testify. I did. I was like, this is going to be it. And then, boom, it took off. And this was right before the Facebook acquisition. But then I was thinking to myself, how do you get entry? Mm -hmm. Once I got into the headset and I experienced it, I was like, there's a bunch of stuff that I would love to do in this, mm-hmm. right? But just like you, I'm not a coder. Right. I'm not uh, an engineer. Right? I have the artistic brain part of me. And I mean, I can do all that stuff, but I just don't have the time. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't have time to figure out. So it, it really, I was, I was really um, trying to figure out what is entry and like not only what is it, what is price point for entry, mm-hmm. and how do you get the eye of a place like New Frontier? Right. Great questions. And all in, an, in, in the kind of birth of a new industry, all no easy answers to. Right. Um, we were really struggling with this. You know, one of my mandates is to try to support artists that uh, have visions of pushing the boundaries. And so one of the first things we did in 2015 was work to develop a residency program. Our, our core goal was not you know, breath and getting a whole lot of people in because we didn't have the resources for that, but to make sure we got a few people in that could basically crack the code on something around storytelling in VR that the rest of the field could learn from as all this technology is evolving. And um, so we did a residency with John, who was really new at the time. They had just established their studio, I think a week before we went into contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. And we selected some incredible artists to go through that residency, one of which was Lynette Walworth, who um, had already been a New Frontier veteran. She had done all kinds of incredible works with augmented reality, like early mobile augmented reality with, you uh, you know, planetarium dome work. And her work was incredibly powerful. And so we asked her to bring a vision that she had for this story um, about Nyari Morgan, uh, an Aboriginal man in in, um, Australia, an elder who had witnessed an atomic test when he was a youth. And kind of all of the kind of a real poem about the clash of kind of Western technology and indigenous cultures and talks about land rights and nuclear deproliferation. But she had an opportunity to show this at the World Economic Forum that January. And so we got her into the residency in the summer. Jaunt came in to support and <clears throat> they were figuring out all kinds of things. You know, literally when we tried to go into figuring out contracts, none of the law firms had a contract to even use as a precedent. Mm-hmm. So there was it was so brand new. It was literally you're writing your own language. Things like, well where's final cut? You know what I mean? Because stitching costs so much money you can't change it after you've gone through the stitching process. So all these things that had to be negotiated, it was really exciting because you had so much power in helping to define and create precedent, but it also was incredibly frustrating because everything was wonky. Nothing was easy. There wasn't a monitoring system really back then. You just had to drop the camera and run and just hope that it caught what it caught. So, I mean, there were so many things that were were really, really early technology. And um, that project, I'm happy to say, just got nominated for an Emmy. Mm. 
um, and, and as well as uh, a number of our a number of our um, alumni and projects have gotten nominated for various VR Emmys, which is. There was the first VR Emmy was by one of our alumni, Sashka Unseld, with Oculus Story Studios last year with Henry, and this year just the field just blew open, and we're really happy that we have a majority of those nominations came from our program, um, e either the alumni or specific projects like Click Effect and um, Collisions, which is Lynette Walworth's piece. But to, all that to say, it was really like true pioneering because we had no idea what was you know what was the right thing in this that we all it was a lot of stumble forward and a lot of courage it took a lot of courage i remember being in really hard conversations and meetings where you had to go hmm you know is this worth keeping continuing like you know mm. is this even worth continuing it's so hard to do it's hard to raise the money it's hard to the technology's not you know cooperating um we had to get this whole they had to show 100 heads of state the collisions piece in half an hour and at that time, that meant a PC for every tethered DK2 and somebody who could run it for 100 people. Like, that was just economically not going to work, not possible. So these are the kinds of exciting things that were happening. So we ended up, um, through a recommendation from John, put her with Nancy Bennett at 2-Bit Circus. And then they're saying, oh, well, let's rise to that challenge and let's figure out how can we have 100 heads of state see a simultaneous screening of the exact same piece at the exact same time with, you know, much less uh, hardware and, um, and, and uh, kind of, you know, docents or whatever. And they cracked the code on that. They figured it out and they did it. Within a few months after that, Chris Milk did it at TED for 1200 And then right after that, um, Samsung did it for 5000 And now IMAX is making that part of their strategy for VR going forward. So it, it was just, it's so exciting to have been at those early moments, but to get there, you know, we had to convince Ford Foundation. I mean, they were great, gracious. Gigi Pritzker's foundation, um, you know, MacArthur Foundation, um, uh, the Skoll, uh, the Skoll Foundation. We had to like really sell this idea of we have no idea if anyone will ever even get to see this thing, but it's worth us investing in innovation. And they stepped up. So ironically, a lot of those early experiments is that that we were able to, to support came from. Um, those that didn't need to see a market return, but had an investment in independent artists staking a claim in figuring out the future of story for various, you know, uh, for storytelling, for technology, and for, for social justice. So I say to entry, I, I say that as a, a story of how kind of wild, wild west, <laughs> you know, VR is. That was 2015. We're in 2017. And what a difference two years makes. At that time, you couldn't go and rent a 360 camera from a production house. Now you can. Um, you know, stitching was a nightmare. Now there's a lot of algorithms that do a lot of the rough stitch for you. You don't have to do that by hand. You you have to do the fine stitch and so forth and all the polishing. Um, there's you know um, very cheap solutions out there that that you you can have an $800 Kodak monoscopic 360 and at least get in the game and start playing with perspective and how do you deal with 360 you know environments as a storyteller. Um, or, you know, so there, there, a lot of things have changed. And quite frankly, if you're going with just pure Unity rendered stuff, I had one of the projects that we brought to the festival in 2016, because the guy taught himself Unity, he did it for 300 bucks. And it was really competitive. <laughs> well, do we run the risk of the same gatekeepers that have film and television? being the gatekeepers of VR, AR, and having that be another thing, that another mountain that we as the artists have to climb in order to yes. get it done. Yeah, so particularly with the jaunt residency, we were really interested in getting women and people of color in um, because, and this is something that I'm working with the Ford Foundation on actively, how do we, um, what interventions do we need to make in emerging media so that we actually can achieve a diversity of voices, uh, and not just voices in terms of content, but diversity of power as well. Those that have the power of, of resources, assets, finances, and credibility. Um, and so in 2015, when, it, when, when VR was really still very DIY, um, and a lot of people were like downloading you know, the specs for you know, a GoPro 3D printed rig and how to do that, we were, Shari Frilo was able to curate um, the very first major exhibition of just storytelling virtual reality in 2015 
with 51% women and people of color and a big, uh, a big um, representation of LGBTQ community. I mean, and some of the, I was in the room, we had VCs, gaming executives, film executives, grassroots, Black Lives Matter activists. We had everybody coming through that space. And I remember particularly this piece by Rose Trochet, who's a Puerto Rican uh, gay woman who created a piece on $4,000 of her own money working in collaboration with, with Morris May, who was just getting you know started um, with his studio. And it was you know literally really scrappy, scrappy production. She did a piece called um, Perspective, which was um, about the college assault epidemic. Mm-hmm. And that piece, I, I literally had one of the top executives in the film industry, I won't even say which studio, go, I had to give him a private tour, walked him in, showed him that piece. He came out with tears in his eyes and he said, I had no idea this was possible, that heightened storytelling was possible in virtual reality. I thought it was just a roller coaster ride. And, and, um, and, he was, so, and that was the year that, all, that they were like, wow, the, there was new kinds of investment coming in. Um, and what had happened, which was really disheartening for me, was to see that out of that, that cohort of artists, which was 51% diverse, meaning not just white males or males in general, um, the only people that were significantly funded at you know million dollars plus were men, and, partic- and mostly white men. And so we saw that trend continue, and it mirrors very much the tech Silicon Valley trends around diversity, um, where the real the only woman to this day that I know has been significantly invested in in virtual reality is Maureen Fan, and she's Taiwanese. She's got Harvard pedigree, Stanford pedigree, Pixar pedigree, and Zynga Games. I mean, she's and she's brilliant and fierce as heck. Um, she's papered up. But but she also when I when I interviewed her and I asked her about how she got the funding, she had to go through the Taiwanese uh, her Taiwanese investment connections to get first money in, and it didn't come from Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so I you know I was really really like oh man you know we're not getting money even though we were doing our you know work with all these foundations money and we were able to get more diversity and uh, supported the the lion's share was going to the traditional um people that get that kind of investment fast forward to 2017 that investment that went in in 2015 showed up in 2017 whereas shari and i from our submission pools have really been able to keep a competitive um, balance for women, people of color, and LGBTQ, we saw a marked difference in the quality of production, the quality of those that just had the money to make mistakes. And they had made a lot of mistakes. And so the people that were coming out with the best submissions were predominantly men and predominantly white men. And it was really telling that, that we kind of missed that intervention window in 2015 to fund at the right amount, the right people. Were you guys just really busy with the emerging technology? Do you feel like it was because you guys were, um, you had, you were preoccupied with actually trying to get the thing to work, or what? What? What was no, the thing our, that you thought? Our, this, that made we're talking about industry wide. Right. So, like industry wide, this was the trend. Right. So we we pull from the entire from you know from in fact all of our efforts were predominantly around trying to get women, people of color, and LGBTQ folks in the game. But was that unexpected when when it happened? Like when those people, the guys who got funded, mm-hmm. was it unexpected to be like, wow, here's this new emerging technology, here are these great people doing it, here is artistic integrity, and it, still, we have to fight. Well, it the, what made the difference was the investment to fail. So right. like those those people that got funded in 2015, had a little bit more wiggle room to 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 invest in projects, to do a lot of projects, to make mistakes on projects. That's to, a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. Um, even now, Rose, as for example, she stayed locked up with with that whole crew the whole time, and she kept paying out of pocket. She, like I, I mean, I had her 
I literally paraded her all over the place to try to get her funded at a significant level, and I could not get anyone to invest in her. Her work is very political, so I understand that it's not the commercial easy thing for some investors to feel comfortable with, um, but I could not get her supported. And it was really frustrating, And but yet she kept showing back up. She showed back up, she was there in 2015, she showed back up in 2016 and in 2017, all with works that she self-funded, never more than $15,000. Mm-hmm. We were able to give her some grant money to support her last work, if not love. And guess what? She just, um, thank God, out of that uh, that cohort, she was picked up by Weaver, and Weaver is just um, about to publish and release the if not love piece. Nice. Um, so there, you know, she, her, Noni de la Pena, also scrappy stayed in it she's the godmother of vr we noticed that we also noticed that in 2015 she was starting to get marginalized in the in the kind of origin story of this wave of vr um and partly her work is very political as well you know it's uh, immersive journalism she hits she's going after tough subjects um whether it be syria or use of or you know immigration border patrol i mean these things are not easy subjects but she was also getting marginalized in the story and we noticed it so at sundance we actually i remember being in the meeting and saying you know we're starting to you know noni's not getting the credit i think that's due whether you like her work or not she is she cannot be erased from the this particular history and so we decided to make sure that in our press conferences and in our um conversations with with stakeholders and vips and putting her on a podium at an event we were just going to push her forward as at least let's just give her what her just do. And that was the year that Engadget called her the godmother of VR. And she went from being kind of slowly starting to get pushed to the margins of, of this history to being invited to the prince's table in the UK next to Eric Schmidt to talk about the future of, of media. And she still has not been significantly funded. You know, she's wow. she's very scrappy and, and she does have a company and it is going and she's starting her business model, starting to work. But she's never got that like VC, you know, uh, you know, twenty-five million dollar investment. But she's still staying in it. But it, you know, it has been interesting to see that dynamic play out over the last, you know, since 20, 2012. Do you feel like um, I remember we had a conversation about VR and you were telling me about how it is really an empathy machine, like for for um, folks to experience actually walking in somebody else's shoes. Do you feel like the popularity of VR is moving it away from that empathic storytelling and it's something yes. else? Yes, actually, what's interesting about that, when I, so in 2015, when I saw Project Syria and I saw um, Rose Troche, Project Syria by Noni Delapena and Rose Troche's um, uh, perspective, I was, I you know, I don't know, I might have been one of the first people to say, oh my God, this, this you know this new machinery, this new uh, hardware platform, this new way of communicating is. Re- I, I literally came out of Project Syria with survivor's guilt because you you're on a street in Aleppo and you witness a bombing and you witness. I witnessed a 12 year old kind of go into um, seizure for, after being struck and being carried off, and my son was that exact same age at that time. And I remember coming out of that piece. Literally, I mean, I was literally crying uncontrollably with survivor's guilt, and I was like, "Whoa, that is that that was a time shift. That was a place shift. That was a perspective shift. That was really powerful for me." So that idea of how this, like other storytelling mediums, but how it has its own unique kind of VR native or immersive media native way of producing a sense of empathy, was really powerful for me, and I thought that was a, a really important part of what we were to learn. But I didn't think it was all that that um, the medium was about. And I was really excited to see an explosion of other ways in which the medium is effective as a storytelling tool, as an experience tool, as a, um, as, a, as a way of experiencing art. And you know, one of the things that I fell in love with in 2016 was the idea of escaping pedestrian versions of reality, where you get to go to the microscopic, you get to go to the macroscopic, you get to not just shift into another person's perspective, but you get to be the eyes of a mosquito, you get to be on an asteroid in space, and those, the sense of awe and wonderment, and the sense of, um, so I think this is part of a bigger paradigm shift in the communication architecture that virtuality, augmented reality, which I think will slowly become much more porous between the two uh, in mixed reality, like 
with headsets like Bridge or whatever that you can go from complete isolation to uh, augmented, you know, digital um, real spaces. Um, I think so. Immersive media is going to be a big part of that. I think artificial intelligence is going to be a huge part of this. I think, um, you know, we're looking at you know the way that robotics and super superhuman augmentation is coming into play. How wired cities and wired spaces and wired objects, all these smart things that are going to start speaking to each other in more robust ways, we're going to be, basically the whole canvas of storytelling is going to explode into everywhere you look, everywhere you see, inside of your own body, on your body, in the walls, on your head, as eyes. And how the hell does an artist figure out how to create a meaningful experience with all of those capabilities, with all those different things speaking to each other. Um, and I think that VR is one experiment into the, like just stepping over the threshold into what that world might look like. But I think it's, I think the skills that we learn in that are gonna be really telling of where we're going. But I don't think it's an end. Right. But uh, in the short run, in terms of how the industry is working, I, you know, last year we, VR was a, a billion dollars short on their projected expectations on sales. Um, everyone was like kind of banking on Sony's Christmas time, but the, it didn't quite pan out that way. The PlayStation VR. The PlayStation headset. VR. But now I understand that everything is ticking up, uh, you know, and a, a really kind of, um, especially, you know, kind of the Sony uh, footprint is, is gaining a lot, a, a lot of um, progress. The you know tethered Oculuses and HTC Vives are still very niche, but the mobile is is much bigger and a lot more people have experience. And so I think that it is changing. I really do believe that the you know the arcade model, which IMAX is pioneering, um, and and like you know the Void and you know some amusement parks, um, not Disney, um, that those are going to be part of the gateway, just like arcades were with you know before we had home gaming, we had you know a social space or uh, and this because it lowers the the barrier to entry. It's eight dollars to see a VR experience versus fifteen hundred to see a quality VR experience. Right. So I think that's going to be and in in China they went from five thousand VR cinemas cinemas to a projected ten thousand in the next couple of years. So it also depends on how the global dynamics are. I think China coming in early is very different than how previous technology shifts happened where U.S. was ahead for so long. I also think that um, as corporations and workspaces start to utilize this technology for communication, for collaborative, you know, uh, work, you know, team group work or trainings or however it'll roll out, whether it be tourism and pre-sales on real estate, it'll become more of a tool, not just for entertainment, but for these other um, marketing or you know, functional operational uh, uses. And that's gonna make it more comfortable for us. We'll have an experience with it before we're investing in it in our homes. So I think all these things are gonna play into uh, where the landscape is going. A right. couple more. You are into world building now. <laughs> yes. And, um, it's something that I've been looking at for a long time and I really, really love. Um, and not a lot of people know about, especially as an outlet for storytelling. Right. Tell us what world building is. All right. And where it came from and who's doing it. I have to say, I was tickled when I saw La La Land had a reference to world building. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, so somebody's heard of it. Um, so Alex McDowell is uh, one of our alumni and also one of our creative advisors for our lab and now our partner in a v, in a world building residency that we're doing with his um, world building institute that's embedded at USC um, and Alex came Alex's story is quite um, interesting because he was an art director on Minority Report many many years ago and they had the novel they had the um, sense of what the world was supposed to be but they didn't have a screenplay yet and so they started Spielberg started with Let's build, you know, let, let, let's start with the art direction. Or he, I, I think Alex says him and this screenplay writer got hired the same day. Mm. And so as he's building out, um, he, he, he brought in a cohort of everybody that, you know, all these different experts from, you know, technology, transportation, architecture, you know, public health, you know, all these different types of folks that would know what it means to make a city. Um, he brought them in and, and kind of pushed them to imagine what is the future based on 
what pipeline scientific learning and research was already happening. And so they built out that incredible world of Minority Report through this process. Um, and afterwards, Dr. John Underkoffler, which was one of the key collaborators, uh, scientists, who had been playing with gestural base interfaces as a, as a research area focus for him, he actually went and created Oblon Industries and created the fictional technology and actually patented it, and they just got a $65 million in, influx of new capital. So he, was, he saw with his own eyes how something that was a pure imagination process based on um, kind of a rigorous kind of strategic planning process manifested not only in this great piece of art that we all love, um, but also actually became realized in the world as, a, as in terms of technological standpoint. Now, he, so he started teaching, started experimenting with world building. He created a, a really um, effective model for going through this collaborative design process and creative and imagination design process. And then he, he kind of shifted and started working with communities in real, real communities and brought the stakeholders from those communities with these experts and went through imagination processes of what do you want your city to look like in 50 years? He did it with a Bedouin tribe in the Middle East. He did it with um, a waterlogged city in Nigeria. And out of those processes, not only did it, I believe, create self-determination and a sense of ownership, like real hyper-local ownership of who we want to be in the future that's informed by all of these um, uh, technological, potential technological advances and so forth. But entrepreneurship started coming out of it, new ideas about inventions. The community came together and started building the drought-resistant aquifers and, and the things that they needed to become the community that they had envisioned. So that really speaks to the power of imagination to to kind of innovation, to manifestation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's in a, it's what story has always done. Story has always been a part of how we, we kind of code our identity frameworks. It's how we code our social systems. It's how we code you know, ideas about who, who, who we are becoming and technologies. All these things are, are something of the imagination first, and then they become manifest. Now, so that I think is really interesting, especially from the point of view of you know, what is the future we're building into. But even if you're not worried about the future, just the imagination process alone, it's, it's a different way in. It's not you know, going through the traditional um, you know, story plot, you know, kind of rising action. It goes from who, who is this world? And then all these different stories, all these different perspectives can grow out of it. And that's really exciting. I think um, the last thing I want to say about that is, so Alex has been my kind of, kind of Sherpa into that. But I've also been really impressed with, you know, totally different instances of, of this kind of imagination process, this Afrofuturism, this idea of who taking ownership of who we are and who we want to become. And I've been very impressed with organizations like the Ayapo Repository in Brooklyn. This is a you know, uh, Salome Asaj is one of the key leaders there. She's a coder, a technologist, and incredible artist. And they created a lending library of artifacts from the future, Afrofuturistic artifacts of the future. Things like, you know, a lantern that as you walk around New York, it lights up. Geolocative lights up when you cross a place where black men have been killed by a police officer or a black person have been killed by a police officer. I mean, these things, the idea that a lot of the Detroit Narrative Agency, you know, which is led by a really diverse group of folks out of Detroit that have a really strong perspective about who they want Detroit to be and not just from kind of this gentrification wave but really from the people of Detroit who do we decide to be so they anybody can come off the street and and have a story about their future or about their past and they create the way in the space for those stories to manifest I mean the Indigenous Futures program up in Canada they're working with the seven generations idea that is very common to Indigenous um uh, ideology that they're planning for those next seven generations through virtual technologies, through gaming, through these incredible new technologies that are allowing them to pre-visualize those futures or just go through the imagination process. If it never is, they're, they're actually even working on, because they're trying to, um, you know, kind of bring back lost languages. They're actually thinking, oh, can we create computer code that is based on indigenous values. Mm. I mean, those kinds of things are huge in terms of what I call uh, kind of under a big umbrella of world building. It's, it's really 
how are we democratizing and galvanizing imagination? And how do we create the architecture behind a world building? And where do we see these worlds? Where do they exist? Do mm -hmm. they exist online? Do they exist, you know, in a, a program that you buy? Like, how do you, how do we get to see them? How do we? Because you know, one of my biggest dreams is to live in Wakanda. <laughs> and if somebody is building Wakanda, <laughs> let's do it. I want to move. I want to be there. Well, you know, I mean, and then from a commercial standpoint, I mean, Star Wars is a is a huge world that was built and yeah. manifests all the time. Harry Potter. I remember the first time I went to Universal Studios and I saw Hogwarts Express and I was in Hogsmeade. I actually cried because, you know, I spent hours and hours and days and days reading these stories with my kids and I saw their faces. They saw the Hogwarts Express and I literally cried. So being able to walk into that world literally was very powerful. Disney, incredible world builders. Um, Alex is working on this episode nine right now. Um, yeah. And so I think film between filming and gaming, we have like 140 plus years of experience around world building. Mm -hmm. It's not new. It's just about who takes ownership of being able to utilize those techniques from filming, from gaming, even, you know, as you say, like I worked for Susan Bonds who did the ARGs through um, 42 Entertainment you know, for like The Dark Knight, you know, she had like 10 million people playing inside of this fiction around the world, dressing up in Joker face, going and, you know, marching down streets, looking for, you know, Easter eggs all over New York City and all over the world. She was an Imagineer. Right. You know, she knew how to build out a physical world. And she also had uh, worked on major games like Hollow. So she knew the virtual world and she knew the digital, the real, you know, building out real worlds. And she used that expertise into bringing into the alternate reality space, gaming space. So I think, it, it, I don't think there's any like kind of this is the place where you open up the door and there's all the knowledge. Even though I have to say Alex's process is quite compelling. Um, the mm. world building process is patented. I mean, it's not patented. It's a trademark and all that stuff. So, you know, go to the World Building Institute and check it out. But, um, I, I do think that what I'm hoping to do from this work that I've done with the Ford Foundation, interviewing people around what is the future of emerging media in terms of equality, uh, I got a lot of people talking about how to, the, the need to democratize imagination and to democratize, um, you know, about who we are going to be in those futures instead of kind of the broadcast, you know, kind of narrow stories that have been told over the last 500 years of mass media. So I'm hoping that we can catalyze more of these, um, you know, smaller communities that are that are taking ownership of of their imagination as a group collectively in collective design, and uh, and that we can. I think that the more people that are doing that, the more we'll find our own blind spots in imagining our future and mitigate some of the kind of crazy stuff that's happened in past technological shifts or industrial revolutions, where we kind of missed some things like oh. Maybe we should have included indigenous values in the last in the industrial revolution, you know, of the, right. of the 19th century and the 20th century, because we might not have the climate change stuff that we're dealing with right now. So I do believe that it can't just come from Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Yeah. What's your media diet? What do you read and watch? And <laughs> where do you get inspiration from? Oh my from? God. Well, ironically, I. I had posted on Facebook the other day that I pledge allegiance to Khaleesi and, <laughs> and I had somebody write back and go, Kamal, I'm shocked you watch Game of Thrones. I thought you only, you know, kind of like lived on the MIT website. <laughs> and, um, and yes, I mean, I, you know, I have, I, I definitely have my um, popular culture um, loves uh, and and we'll binge watch some you know Handmaid's Tale, uh, Handmaid's Tale, and and some you know. Uh, I even went to the I even went to the marathon for Twilight. <laughs> wow. I know that was pretty bad. You know wow, I, I I know I'm admitting that out in public. It's my it's my wow, you my heard one. It here first. I'm so sorry, whoever <laughs> whoever had respect for me, but um I did sit through 12 hours of all the Twilight series, you know, oh to see the God. final. Yeah, it's really sad. Hunger Games, like all this stuff. I'll eat all that up, but um. But when, uh, but I actually, 
you know, when I first started at Sundance in the interview process, Carrie Putnam, who's the executive director, she looked me in the eyes and she said, if you want this job, you have to become the expert on all things emerging media, new media, transmedia, whatever we called it at the time. And I was like very intimidated by that, you know, mandate. Um, and so I basically set Google alerts for everything. <laughs> And I have a skill set of being able to kind of like scrub, we call it scrubbing in, in my department where I like, I'll send out, you know, I'll, I'll do one scan and then I'll send it to, uh, you know, our intern or, our, or my man, you know, the manager that works under me. And we, we like all just like scrub it to get like what the basic, we're doing that every day. We're scrubbing all kinds of everything from, you know, old terms like transmedia that don't appear as much anymore to biomedia, bio, biohacking, AR, VR, um, you know, emerging media. I mean, like, as many words as you can think, whether it be um, uh, even, you know, AI, robotics, and, as well as, you know, following the art trends and looking at what's happening from a lot of the institutions and exhibitions and festivals that we respect. We look at who are they granting, who are they bring into their labs and residencies and we're tracking and we track thousands and thousands of artists projects and trends from technology and art it's it is a full-time job for like a whole department of people <laughs> that's interesting i mean i do the same thing i set google alerts for the things that i'm interested in and i'll set a google alert for something that no one has ever thought of and then the next thing you know something will pop up mm -hmm. like i set a google alert for um uh what was it? It was for um, food. It was food, future, um, and bio storytelling. And mm. then, boom, somebody, something popped up for somewhere out of China. Somebody's telling, you know, a bio story using culinary, you know, wow, molecular yes. gastronomy. So, I mean, that helps. Yeah. Google helps a lot, especially <laughs> for like all of the things. If you're if you're looking for anything emerging, mm -hmm. which, you know, and also we have like I think about Varys and Game of Thrones and he has his little birds and whispers. Yeah. You know, little we birds. we go out to the fields uh and we we have a huge community that yeah. we've cultivated over 35 years and we go out to the traditional film folks, the traditional theater folks, we go out to all those folks and we go out to our alumni and we go out to all of our previous advisors, we go out to, and we go out to a lot of people every year and say, what is most exciting to you right now? Right. What has meaning for you right now? Because it's not just about, one thing I wanna be super clear about is that we are not looking for the next bells and whistles. We're looking for some, for artists and projects that are being able to make meaning with those new capabilities in the human communication architecture. And that is a much harder needle in a haystack to find. Right. So what do you think is next? What do you think is coming up, not just in, not just from artists, but from emerging media? Like, what do you think is about to happen that people haven't heard of yet? That you can talk about yeah um that you think is just really interesting that's really well you know we, we always say that we're not futurists in that we don't predict the future we're nowists and we're trying to assess what we're seeing um so i just want to make sure that i did not pretend like i got a crystal ball or anything like that but some of the things that i'm super interested in is definitely breaking out of the silos of these new technologies and seeing Susan Bonds used to call it connected immersion for mm -hmm. like kind of the way that she saw transmedia in the ARG space at that time and I think that that concept in this next paradigm shift of, of technological capability and communication is really a really great terminology connected immersion how are artists going to take these AR VR AI, robotics, you know, wired cities, wired homes, wearables, and find particularly data. I mean, we're about to see data on a whole level that we've never seen before. And, and data is going to be a center of power. Right. Um, but how are we taking that clay of the data that we're generating and finding meaning in it? And I, so I think data, we had a, a residency at MIT about data storytelling, like database storytelling. How do we take data and not just do great infographs, but how do we make meaning out of it? So I think connected immersion ultimately is where we're going, but what that looks like and what the best practices, I mean, we're really nascent on. And I also think that we can't ignore the ways in which the bioengineering, biohacking, biomedia innovations will come into play. 
um, and how our bodies are going to have to engage in these spaces. Like I got to interview Daito Manabi, who is an incredibly adventurous and innovative uh, creator. He dabbles in everything from drones and censored-based, you know, um, wearables. Um, you know, all these ways in which the body connects with, and also data and visualization and music. And I mean, he's just phenomenal. But he, I think what he does gives you a glimpse, and he works with AI, it gives you a glimpse into how does a human being, you know, what is meaningful for a human being in the middle of all this technology? How's the body react in it? And just Google him and look through all of his, his works, Daito Manabi out of Japan, and you'll kind of get a sense of this feels like something that he's been pioneering for a while, that he's part of a, a generation of you know people that are trying to figure out that I think will congeal eventually into something that becomes part of our lives. What does immersion mean to you? Like, what is an immersive experience? What is that? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I often use Stomp as an example for people, the difference between sitting in it. Because I, when I first went to see Stomp, my friend dragged me down there. He was like, they're going to have auditions next week. You should audition. And I was like, I don't know how to play a drum. And he was like, well, I'll pay for you to go see the show. You just come see with me. And then if you like it, then you can go audition. So I went and I sat in like row five or something. And I was blown away. It was amazing. I felt the synergy. I felt the energy. I felt the dust on my face, from the, or the sand on my face, the water splashing out from the stage. But I was still sitting in a seat looking at a stage, and it was a distance. It was distant from me. And still very powerful. A lot of energy in that room. Then I remember being on stage with you. I don't even remember when this was. And it wasn't even in the early months or whatever. It was probably further along when we were a little bit more mature in our you know, performance of the show, where all eight of us actually hit a foot stomp at the exact same yeah, time. I remember that. And my whole, I mean, it was like the best orgasm ever. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it was just like, whoa, like Kundalini, like my head exploded. I was like, wow, the universe just opened up. And that was powerful. Me and Keith, we, we still talk about that all the time. That was like, um, I have a really good friend, um, Josh Waitzkin, who I've mentioned on the podcast once before. And he and I talk about the flow state. You know, like pulling yourself out of time or everything it feels like time and space don't exist. And every time, you know, he said he's had that while playing chess because mm. he's a, a chess um, grandmaster. And he's, you know, been in this flow state where he said, and this, I, he lost me on this one, but he was just like, I didn't see pieces. I just saw fields of energy. Mm -hmm. right? The closest I have ever come to that exact same experience was that day was that wow. show because it felt like we pulled ourselves out of space time and yes. it was like frozen and i remember <laughs> <laughs> i remember because i think i was leading i was at the lead yeah, of that yeah, show i was leading that, that show yep. right so i remember all right for those who haven't seen stomp <laughs> at the end of the show there's a big like we all jump up in the air and we slam down <laughs> Right when we got garbage cans and lids and stuff like that, so I remember we all jumped up in the air and froze. Like mm. we were all at the in the air at the same time, and I remember being able to see everybody from like a bird's eye perspective. Right. I think I saw all of us on stage. I saw everybody in the audience. Like everything stopped, <laughs> and then we all slammed down at the same. It sounded like one note. Oh. We all was just like bop. And then we all kind of got up and looked at each other like, what was that? What just happened? It's powerful. Yeah. And I, whatever that was that we experienced in real space, I mean, we've known this, we've been doing this in our rituals and in our, in our, yes. in our, in our, thousands you know, years. kind of community based art experiences for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. But to be able to figure out how to make those experiences mass, you know, more broadly experienced than just the eight of us on stage. Right. That's, I think, what we're trying to crack here. Right. Well, Kamal, where can we find you? Where can we find all your thoughts, your talks? <laughs> you talk. You talk a lot. You're around a lot. You do a lot of um, speeches and presentations at a lot of places. How can we keep up with you? <laughs> you know what? I so don't hard. have a strategy for that. <laughs> I actually don't have a strategy for that because I really do serve 
under the umbrella of Sundance and under the umbrella for just film for Foundation Just Films, and so everything that I do lives under those banners, and I'm proud and happy and honored to do so. But I've never really thought about oh, how do I bring all these like fragmented panels into the into one space? Part of me is a little bit hesitant about you know being the person that knows it all because this is the most freaking humbling space you could be in because as soon as you say you think you know something you get proved wrong yeah, like exactly. it's just humbling and humbling so I, I I really do see myself in service of artists and in service of institutions that are in service of artists and in service of the arts as well as justice and equality so I don't know I, I'm not good at the self-promotion thing sorry guys just go to sundance.org <laughs> well, I, a new I mean, frontier I, hashtag I can, I can vouch for that because um, every time I look up, I'm like, where is Kamal? <laughs> and I text you. You're like, oh, I'm in Berlin. What? You were- <laughs> I know. I know. I was like, I'm doing a world building in the Bernali at right. Berlin Film Festival with Alex McDowell. I'm like, where is she? What is she doing? <laughs> um, but I am incredibly honored to get you on the podcast. You know, I have so many special feelings for you because uh, you are my sister and I love same, you very much. Same and um, I'm proud of you. And I am very happy that you got to spend a little time on the Afrofuturist podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, honored to do so. I can't. I just love what you do. I love your framing on all of this and creating a platform for all of us uh, nerds to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Austin Clare. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, Please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed best. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.